You guys ever been to uh, Napa wine country? Any place like that? A few people? I went to Napa this summer. Uh, I know nothing about wine, and uh, I loved it. I thought it was gorgeous. It also made me realize that I think I'm in a committed relationship with beer. So, um, yeah, I, didn't, I still don't know enough. But y- you, know, you know what I uh, saw when I was there? Robert Mondavi Vineyards. You guys know the Mondavi Vineyards? Uh, so you guys know it because the big bottles of Woodbridge wine that you bring to people's parties, he, he, he makes those. So um, it, with, with apologies to Mondavi, with apologies to Robert Mondavi and uh, Woodbridge and with apologies to uh, Robert Farrakhapan who tells a similar story, I am going to go ahead and tell the story of the parables in the vineyard through the eyes of Mr. Robert Mondavi. You guys ready to do this with me? All right, let's do it. So, uh, California, beautiful harvest time, and uh, Mondavi looks out over his vineyards, and it's amazing, right? Just the grapes are ready to be picked, and the, you know, the Merlot grapes are robust and huge, and the Pinot grapes are delicate just the way they should be. And I learned something in Napa. And, um, <laughs> and so Mondavi looks out, and he goes... Uh, he goes, wow, we're not going to get all of this picked in time. We're just not going to. And so he goes down to the Grape Pickers Union, and he walks in, and he says, uh, hey, what is the rate? What's the going rate for an eight-hour day? And they say, it's about 120 bucks." He goes, great, you guys are skilled workers, you're good workers, you've put in the work to know how different grapes need to be picked and how different vineyards need to be treated. And so he, he puts them all into a, a passenger van and they all go back to Mandavi's vineyards and they start picking and they're doing an incredible job. They're picking the grapes in the right ways and making sure they're reaching under canopies and all the rest and the grapes are, are being picked wonderfully. But it's not going to be enough. It won't be enough because uh, there's just way too much to do and they haven't even touched the Chardonnay grapes yet. And so he goes to Home Depot. That's where you find good workers. Robert Mondavi goes there. And you have a lot of people who want to work, who really want to work. Maybe some of them are undocumented. Maybe some of them uh, just never had the education. They didn't quite make the union. And so they're there and they want to work. And Mondavi says, I'm Robert Mondavi. I'm rich. I need to make big bottles of Woodbridge wine. I need you to come pick the grapes. They say, great, and they do it. They pile into the van, and they go, and they start picking as well. They're not as skilled as the union workers, but they're pretty good. They're picking the grapes the right way, and, and, and most of the work is getting done, but at around 4 o'clock, Mondavi looks out at his vineyard, and he's like, we still have a bit to go, and we don't have enough people. We're not going to get this done today. So Mondavi looks around. He's like, what should I do? What should I do? The tourists are here. Maybe I can ask the tourists to pick the grapes for me. He's like, oh, wait, there's a bar, there's a local bar in town. I'm going to the local bar. So, drives his van down to the local bar, the local bar busts in the door, like Hank Williams on the jukebox. It's like all dusty, musty, and, and, and you know what the bar looks like? It looks like a bunch of bad decisions, right? You've been in that bar before. You've been there. Bad decisions everywhere. Right, cycles of addiction and poverty and, and people who haven't worked in years and people on disability who have lost their, their lust for life and Mandavi walks in and he sees all these people. And he goes, I'm Robert Mandavi, I'm rich and I will pay you for an hour's worth of work. And you see some guy who's been on disability for 22 years, he's like, you know what, it's an hour. What do I have to lose? He's half drunk. He goes off with Mondavi. There's another couple that's there, and the couple has just spent their day, day after day after day at this bar. And they actually say to the bartender, we're going to go, but keep the tab open for us, okay? We're going to come right back. And they go. A couple guys playing pool, shut Hank Williams off in the jukebox. They head out the door as well. A few others join them. 
quite, quite the bunch, quite the bunch. They show up at the vineyard. They get to work, for the most part, get to work. Some of them actually get the grapes in baskets. Others drop grapes on the ground. People are stepping on it. They're sort of ruining the way the plants need to be canopied to make the best kind of wines. And the union workers just look at them, and they're like, what are these people doing? And then the people at the bar recognize that the union workers are looking at them, and they go, how much are you guys making today? They go, listen, we're making union wage, 120 bucks. They turn around. They don't want to be associated with the other people. The other people are like, great. That means we're going to get like 15 bucks for this. That's what it means. Just enough for the PBR shot special thing. That's what we have uh, the money for. And so, uh, uh, you know, the, all of a sudden, the, the day is over and the grapes have been picked and Mandavi is very happy. In fact, he's so happy, what he wants to do is he wants to go ahead and pay everybody himself. So uh, he lines everybody up. He's got the envelopes out. And the first person online is the guy that's been on disability for 22 years. And he gives him an envelope. He hands him the envelope. He goes, thanks so much for your work. And the guy looks in the envelope. Inside are six crisp $20 bills. So what does the guy that was at the bar who's only worked an hour, what does he do? He takes off, walking as fast as he can. <laughs> he does not look back because Robert Mondavi has obviously made a mistake and given him the wrong envelope. So he walks as fast as he can, and he's joined by that couple that was sitting at the bar that wanted to keep their bar tab open, and they whispered to one another, did you get 120? I got 120. Keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. And they keep walking. Well, the union worker at the back of the line hears this. And the union worker goes, finally, I'm being recognized as having a real skill. Finally, what I do matters. I stand to get around $1,500 from Mandavi for doing my work today. This is amazing. And he walks up to Mandavi, and Mandavi hands him the envelope. And he opens up the envelope, and inside are six crisp $20 bills. And he is outraged. In fact, all the union workers are outraged. And so they all go to Mondavi and they're like, what is this all about? We know what you gave the people who showed up and only worked for an hour. He's like, you gave them the same amount we got. And Mondavi's like, that's what we agreed to. We agreed to 120 bucks. And they go, but these people, they, they, did you see what happened? They didn't even get the, the grapes in the basket. He goes, listen, this is what I decided I wanted to do. And they go, well, that's unfair. And he goes, yeah, I'm unfair. I am unfair. That's who I am. Now, why don't you go up and have a glass of wine at the house, okay? It's on me. It's free. Uh, and, the first, uh, and the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. That's the kingdom of heaven. All right, we're done. We can go home. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's the kingdom of heaven. So this is the story that Jesus tells right here. This is the exact story that Jesus tells. This is the way people would have heard it 2,000 years ago when they were listening to Jesus. They would have heard it in a similar fashion. And we are in our storyline series, okay? We're talking about the parables of Jesus. And what I've said is I've said that these parables of Jesus were going to mean different things to different people at different times, okay? These parables would have affected people differently. They would have challenged people differently. So let me ask you, have you heard this parable before? Have you? Six of us? Good, good, a lot of us. All right. We've heard this parable before, and we've heard this parable spoken of in different ways, right? What does this parable mean to you? What does it mean to you? When I was young, um, I was always taught, always, that this parable was about getting into heaven. 
that, you know, people who are Christian, uh, they're going to get into heaven. But if you prayed to God, you know, like on your deathbed, you could still get into heaven too. That's the way I always heard it. And it was always like my excuse not to go to church. I was always like, Mom, I shouldn't have to go to church because I can just pray when I, you know. And my mom would be like, you're going to church. And so that's the way um, that I thought about that when I was younger. Maybe some of us still think that way. What does this parable mean to you? I mean, this parable is pretty incredible because it speaks to grace. I love the way this speaks to the grace of Jesus Christ. I love it, right? Who has the audacity to bust into some bar and say to people who make a series of bad decisions over and over and over again that you are valued, that I want you to come with me, right? I love that part of the story. We live in this meritocracy where you have this idea of right and wrong. And people who do the right things are good, the wrong things are over here. And Jesus is like, that doesn't even matter. I have the nerve to take the people who do all the wrong things and tell them that, that they're with me. I love that. And maybe that's what this parable is about. Maybe it's about that. You know, uh, this um, book, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, that this parable comes from, was written about 50 or 60 years after Jesus, Okay. So you have a bunch of new churches, and all these new churches are together, and there's all these different people at these churches. There's some people who are lifelong Jews, and there are people who worship Roman gods, and they're all coming together, and there's a lot of questions about, like, hey, do we all have the same rights? Are we all allowed to do the same things at the church? And sometimes I think that, that the author of Matthew would have put this story into the gospel as a way of telling all these people in these new churches, hey, yeah, you do all have the same rights. You guys are all on the same plane. This is how your church starts. Maybe that's what this parable is about, right? Parables will mean different things at different times to different people. So what do I think it looks like, or how do I think it looks? Well, remember, if you guys were here last week, which it was Labor Day. (laughs) But anyway, if you were here, I said, what I say up here is just a suggestion. Okay, So I don't want you to take my word for it. What I want you to do is I want you to go home, I want you to read, I want you to pray. I want you to wrestle with the scripture in front of you. That's what scripture is all about. It's for us to wrestle with. It's for us to ask, God, what are you telling me in this? So as I wrestled through scripture over the past couple weeks, you know, there's a word that struck out to me. And it's in uh, you know, chapter 20, verse 12. It's the word equality, equal. And I thought about that as we talk about this parable. And, and here's what I thought about. Um, I think at the end of the day, at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, we do not want equality. At the end of the day, when it comes down to it, I don't think we want equality. I don't. I think we're pretty, pretty comfortable having hierarchies. I think we're pretty comfortable with classes. I think we're pretty comfortable uh, with having different people at different levels of life. We like uh, competition, right? We like, we like the battle. We like division. We like that. At the end of the day, I don't think we want equality. Just my thought. Think about it. It starts young with us, right? And it it manifests itself in some weird ways, right? It manifests itself, um, you know, in ways that usually look pretty good. Like, for instance, generosity. Like, one of my first, one of the first memories that I have, I was probably four years old, I was in pre-K, and this is like, it has stayed with me, was this kid in pre-K giving me a toy dinosaur. His name was Tony. And he was like, here you go. And I was like, thanks, Tony. And I was like, let's go play dinosaurs in the sandbox. And it was a great day, wonderful day. But what happened next is the next day, Tony shows up, and Tony gives me another dinosaur. And he goes, here you go. And I remember I, so well at four years old thinking, oh, Tony thinks he's better than me because he's giving me two dinosaurs, and I don't have anything to give him. At four years old, I'm thinking that. 
And at four years old, I remember so well thinking, I don't want to play with Tony today, but now I'm going to have to play with him because he gave me another dinosaur and I don't want him to think that he's better than me. Four years old, that is one of my first memories. We do that, right? This is what we do. We designate. We place people in classes. Think about what happens when you pick up the tab and and you think about that person. And in your head, you're like, well, I'm being generous and I'm picking up the tab. And you're like, but if they don't pick it up the next time, I'm going to think differently about them. We bring our bottles of Woodbridge wine to parties because what happens if we show up empty-handed? What will people think of us? They might think we're on a different level than them. There's some inequality there. The tryout thing, you guys remember tryouts? Jen remembers tryouts. You guys remember them? What do we do during tryouts if you tried out for something? This is what I did. I looked at people in the room. That guy, I don't have to worry about him, no good. This person, eh, they're all right. No, I'm not going to worry too much. That guy's my competition. That's the guy I have to pay attention to. This person, they've already made the team. You You do this. You make these designations on people. You make judgments on people. You, 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 you tell people that they are in a different hierarchical place than you are. That's what we do. If you're single and somebody gets engaged. You are married and you're trying to conceive and somebody else gets pregnant. You've auditioned for spot after spot after spot and somebody else gets that job. How do we feel? What's wrong with me? Why am I not as good as that person? What's wrong? What am I doing wrong? Or if we're on the flip side, I did deserve that. That was good for me. I'm glad that thing happened. And then this is where it gets a little bit uncomfortable because what do we do when we're talking to somebody who obviously does not have the same socioeconomic class that we have? What do we do? We invest in that person. This person's going to become my best friend. More often than not, we're like, this person's not really at my level. What about educational? Educational class. I've been in school for 11 years. This person didn't even graduate high school. I don't know if we're ever going to be friends. What about ethnicities? Do we talk to people with different ethnicities and make judgments upon them and put them into different classes based on who they are and who they are not? Is this part of who we are? And I think at the end of the day, we don't want equality. We like inequality. I was listening to this, um, this guy speak when I was a teacher. I taught for seven years, and I'll never forget it. He said, he said you know what? We like the fact that there is uh, economic disparity. We like the fact that there's educational disparity. We like the fact that there's ethnic disparity because we can come to conferences like this and talk about it, figure out how we're going to fix it. That's fun. I was like, dang, man. But he's sort of right. It gives us this construct. Who's inferior? Who's superior? Who, who's great? Who's not so great? Who's on the inside? Who's on the outside? We, we have these designations. It's all about equality. I think this is what this parable boils down to. When you look at this parable, in uh, uh, Matthew 20, verse 12, it says this. It says, These who are hired last worked only one hour, they said. And, they have, and, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. This equal to us piece. These are the union workers talking, right? They're talking to Mandavi, like, let's keep that little thing going. They're talking to Mandavi, right? And they said, you, they, you have made them equal to us. So, you know, you look at this scripture, right? I checked out the Greek, and in the Greek, the word equal is similar to the way we use the word equal. And so I was like, okay, well, what's the context here? What context does this word equal work? And I looked, and, and I'm going to read this because it's this important. The word equal is being used here, okay, by Jesus in telling this story. 
to say that these other workers are being given the same quality and quantity, okay, and dignity. Dignity. Now, dignity is sort of what it comes down to. We're giving, you, you are giving them the same dignity. We are union workers. We are skilled. We've gone through years of training. We pick grapes the right way. We make sure that we pay our dues. We get together. We vote. We do other things. These people are drunk. And they show up, and they've made terrible decisions in their lives, and you have given them the same dignity that you have given me. And Jesus says, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, the writer Charles Campbell says this, he says, it exposes, pain, it exposes and painfully unmasks the deep presuppositions that all too often form the air we breathe and shape our lives to such an extent that we cannot even imagine alternatives. We have this world where that does not fly, that does not work. We don't want to give dignity to people that aren't on our level. Let me ask you this question. Let's answer it honestly, okay? Do we want to live in a world... Do we want to live in a world that's fair all the time? I sort of do. Do we want to live in a world where, where people are judged based on what they are, are able to accomplish or how hard they work? Do we want to live in a world where that's how people are judged? Kind of. Kind of. We want to live in a world where people are given dignity based on the way they live their lives and the good decisions that they make. Do we want to live in that world? A little bit. It's sort of the world I want to live in, I think, until the truth is that I need dignity that I don't deserve. I think those are the ways I want to live, the rules by which I want to live until I want to break the rules. <laughs> think about it. You guys, ever, um, you guys ever ask a cop to get you out of a ticket for anything? Somebody got a bike ticket the other day. They were like, please, it's too much money. <laughs> you ever... Um, you ever call up? I had to call my professor. That's how long ago I went to college. You ever call your professor and be like, "Hey, I need an extension on my paper for like two days." I was the king of that. <laughs> you ever do that? I need an extension. Um, something happened, and you just make it up as you're on the phone. Uh. <laughs> you ever judge somebody for doing something that you did before? I can't believe they left that tip. That's ridiculous. Meanwhile, you left the worst tip two weeks ago. I can't believe they're playing music so loud. Meanwhile, it's 11.30. You're still sitting outside playing music. You ever do that? I think we like this idea of fair. I think we like the idea of fair until, until we need to break the rules for ourselves, until we need dignity when we don't deserve dignity. And then there's the flip side. There's the, 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 the people who are getting uh, dignity even when they don't deserve it. Listen, I'll stand up. I'm a white male. I get dignity when I don't deserve it because that's the way society works and it's broken just be honest. How else do we get dignity? Who has uh, more money? If you have a little bit more money, maybe you're going to get a little bit more dignity, whether you deserve it or not. Maybe you've done something that, that helps you stand out a little bit more, and you do not deserve dignity in the least because you've done this one thing. Well, you have it. You have it. So we like the idea of fair. We like the idea of dignity to those who deserve it until we realize that this is a broken place anyway. So Jesus comes along and says, he says, you know what, I want to bring peace to this broken place. And my kingdom says that everybody, from the most skilled of workers to the drunkest, worst decision makers around, receive my dignity. That means everybody. That means three things. It means everybody is made 
exactly and according to God's image. Everybody. means everybody is loved exceedingly and abundantly beyond you could ever ask or imagine. Everybody. And it means that everybody is giving, given dignity beyond your wildest dreams and imagination. And that sounds super trite. If you come to church, you hear that a lot. But do we really believe it? Do we really believe it? The other day, I was uh, like joking around, and I was like talking about the Westboro Baptist Church. You guys know them? Westboro Baptist Church? They picket like, people's funerals and stuff like that. And so I was sitting there, and I was like, yeah, Westboro Baptist Church is such, such a joke. What a joke they are. And the person I was talking to goes, yeah, yeah, isn't it crazy, though, how every time we draw a line, there's Jesus on the other side of it? And I was like, oh, I hate you. Why would you say that? awful because that's what that means it means that everybody gets dignity that's awful think about that there's things i don't even want to say up here people who bombed the boston marathon we draw a line in the sand we say they should rot in hell there's jesus on the other side with them that feels terrible i don't even want to stand up here and say that and then jesus says that's the kingdom of heaven that's it and it's not good it's not fair. Or I'm sorry, it's not, jeez, oh, it's not fair. I feel like it's not good. This is how hard it is for me. <laughs> you know, he's like, it's not fair. It's not fair, but it's really good. It's really good. And it's hard for us to believe it's really good, according to me, with my Freudian slips. It's hard for us to believe it. So what does that mean that we do? What do we have to do? So as a church, what do we do? You know, we talk all the time. We say that as a church, our job is to help usher in the kingdom of heaven, right? Our job is to restore peace to those who deserve peace. Our job is, is to um, say, like, God intended this kingdom to be one of complete and utter peace, and we have to help with that. It means that whether we like it or not, we live by the rules that say everyone is equal and that dignity is restored. And it starts with us. I was talking to somebody the other day in our community and this person came up to me and they said, you know what, I do not like myself and I've tried to do X, Y, and Z and it hasn't worked out and my family's not happy with me. And like to hear that like broke my heart. Like it broke my heart. I was, and I thought this person sort of had it together and that I thought they were doing a good job and doing good things and they were like, I don't believe in me anymore. It starts with us. As trite as it sounds, do we believe that we are loved beyond all we could even ask or imagine? As trite as it sounds, do we believe that we receive dignity that exceeds our wildest dreams? Do we believe that we are made in the image of God? Because every single one of us in this room today and outside of here are. Do we believe it? It starts with us. And if we can believe it, then we can restore dignity to others. In the hardest and most difficult of ways. I know Jen has told this story from stage before. This is how much it affected us. During Hurricane Sandy, there was a woman who called our church. And, hey, uh, my house is broken and it broke down. Can you bring furniture? Or can you buy me furniture? And we were like, yeah, we'll do that. And we buy this woman furniture. And then she calls back a few days later. Hey, you know, Sandy's really messed me up and now I need groceries. And, okay, okay. We give her groceries. And then she calls and she's like, yeah, this whole Sandy thing. Can you guys get me a TV? And um, at this point in our office, we're like, what is up with this woman? Like, what is up with her? Like, I don't want to get her a TV. And, you know, so we start talking about how she's, like, milking the system and, like, taking advantage and all this. And there's this office worker we had at the time. His name was Ryan Jordan. And Ryan Jordan, like, kind of peeks up from his desk and he goes, hey, this is the gospel. Give her the TV. 
Touche. But can we do that, right? Can we give dignity to people who we say are taking advantage of a system, who we are in some ways considering thieves? Can we say, you are my equal. You deserve exactly what I deserve. We get the same stuff. We both get loved. Can you do that? Ed Shevlin uh, used to go to our church. He just moved to California, and he posted something on Facebook that I want to read to you guys. Uh, He basically, he walked into a subway car, and um, you know how you see the subway car, and at first you're like, yes, it's empty, and then you realize that there's somebody who doesn't smell very good there, right? That's what you realize. So he said he walked in, and there was this gentleman who obviously did not smell very well, wasn't doing very well. And everybody was standing on the other side of the car, just, you know, doing what we all do, snickering, shaking our heads, all the rest. And Ed said he went and he stood where the two, by the door were the, uh, in between cars. And he said uh, eventually the man got up and uh, Ed, Ed moved out of the way and the man began urinating. And so Ed says that, you know, people just sort of went a little crazy, you know. And, and this is what Ed said. He posted this. He said, who am I in any of this? I put myself in his shoes, switch places with him, live one day in his life. No, live one hour of his life. And I realized, do you seriously think as a child he dreamt of being a man people laughed at because his bathroom was a train track? you seriously think this man woke up one day and said, let me be that guy who people run from, the, pe- the person people pull their children from as if he was a monster? Who am I in any of this? Are we really willing to restore dignity to people who life has not given a fair shake? Who's... Life has become uh, one where you're being mocked on a train. Are we willing to give dignity to those people? Because this story tells us that we are equal to them, that they are loved as much as we are, that they deserve what we deserve. You know, in Ferguson, Missouri, there was a young man who was shot. And from what we can tell and from what we hear, he was shot because there is systematic indignity. There is an indignity that continues to happen. There is systematic inequality that's happened for hundreds of years. And there are thousands of protesters that say, you know what, we are sick and tired of this systematic inequality. We are sick of it. We're sick of the fact that people, based on how they look, are treated a certain way, do not get dignity while others do. This is ridiculous, and I agree. It's ridiculous. How do we restore dignity? How do we restore dignity to, 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 to someone like Michael Brown and to Ferguson, Missouri and to all the other Michael Browns and Ferguson, Missouris out there? How do we do it? How do we start? Do we tell stories? Share experiences? I think we start by saying, hey, neighbor who's right next to me, who's different from me, you're equally dignified the way I am. You are loved the way I am. Are we ready to do that as a community? And if so, if we're ready to do that, then we're ready to usher in the divine. And if we're ready to usher in the divine, then we are going to make a difference and peace will be brought. And this crazy upside-down kingdom that Jesus talks about will start making a little bit of sense. Robert Farrar Capon, who grew up in Long Island by where I grew up, he was a priest. He said this, he said, My life is a witness to vulgar grace. It's a grace that amazes as it offends. It pays the eager beaver who works all day the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. It's a grace that raises bloodshot eyes from a dying thief's request, please remember me, and it assures him, you bet, 
A grace that is the pleasure of the Father, fleshed out in the carpenter Messiah, Jesus Christ, who left his Father's side, not for heaven's sake, but for our sake, yours and mine. This vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion, and it works without asking anything of us. It is not cheap, it is free. It's free as such, it will always be a banana peel for our our orthodox feet and for our grown-up sensibility. Let's usher in God's kingdom. Let's bring dignity to others. Let's make this place a little bit more upside down. Amen. Let's pray, guys. Uh, God, thank you for just, um, oh my goodness, thank you for dignity. Um, Thank you for giving it to each and every one of us in the midst of the most, um, you know, trying times in our lives and in our worst decisions and in the rest that, that we are made in your image, that we are loved and that we are dignified. God, just give us the courage to give that to others. We pray this in your name. Amen.